Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikerska. This is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the She Session and a latest report that shows women are considering quitting their jobs in the midst of the pandemic. We're also going to dig into Loblaw's latest investment into telemedicine and why the company is getting back into the banking business. We're also going to talk about how to pivot your business in the midst of a pandemic and what you should be doing if you are running a seasonal business. Now, to get through all those topics, I'm joined once again by Mark Satov. He is the founder of Satov Consultants and a business strategy expert that's here to help us find solutions for businesses that are dealing with the pandemic. Mark, welcome back to the show. Um, Can you believe that this is our 30th episode of Crisis Management? Isn't that crazy? Very cool. A couple of 30-year-olds doing their 30th episode at the same time. It's amazing. Very excited. (laughs) Cool topics. Yes. Okay. Well, let's kick off the show talking about the She Session. A new study has found that one-third of Canadian women have considered quitting their jobs to stay at home and take care of responsibilities at home during the coronavirus pandemic. The study, which was conducted by Polaris Strategic Insights and the Prosperity Projects, it surveyed 1,000 Canadian adults across the country, and not surprisingly, two-thirds of respondents found it stressful to manage work and home life during the lockdown. However, when it came to considering uh, whether to quit your job in order to work or stay at home and take care of those responsibilities, the results differed between men and women. One third of women considered quitting their jobs compared to less than a fifth of men. Unfortunately, I'm not surprised by this. Um, As I mentioned off the top, we're calling this the she session. There's a reason why we're doing that. It's a a very different recession from uh, what we've seen in previous years or decades. Um, Mark, I want to start by getting your reaction to the studies, and then we can talk about potential responses. But what did you think? Sure. I mean, like you, I'm not surprised. And uh, the she session, as, as we are calling it, I think has two uh, sort of, uh, I'll say, related uh, reasons. So one is, you know, women are in some of the roles that were hardest hit. So women are sometimes in uh, support type roles where you need proximity and some hospitality roles. Uh, and then the report that you cited where a third of women uh, are considering quitting their job during the pandemic. And I'm happy that you talked a lot about the difference between the stats for women and men, because the fact that people are considering quitting their job in and of itself is not necessarily newsworthy. I mean, I consider quitting my job every few months or so, uh, and I think a lot of people consider it. But the the point that you make is actually a third of people, a third of women are considering quitting their job and only a fifth of men. And I think they're citing the reason being that they feel that need to uh, stay at home. And so I, I, I think it's definitely an issue. Mm-hmm. So do you think uh, there are policy type solutions that the government should be looking at to 
uh, just make sure that this, or I guess find solutions to this she session. What could be done about it? It's a very interesting thing. I thought a lot about it this morning because I think there's a difference between how we respond to this now and how we respond to it over time. Because, you know, the reality is today uh, that we have not reached a place where women are equal in the workplace. And I think that I think we're taking great strides. I actually think the last two or three years, we've seen a lot of movement. Uh, And like a lot of social movements, you know, of course, some of it is people saying the right things, but I actually see a lot of initiatives and a lot of companies, I'll say, doing the right things. The problem is that takes time. And so what's happened today is, if you think about it, many families rely on two incomes to pay the bills, right? And so if it is true that women make less because either they have different jobs or they have the same jobs but are not paid fairly. Well, when you when you have to pay the bills and when one person is going to maybe sacrifice their job, it is actually the logical step today to say that the person who makes less is going to sacrifice their jobs. And so unfortunately, I feel like I don't want to be defeatist. I, I just think the, the policy levers that they have in the short term are not as important as the policy levers in the long term because you're not going to change that fact uh, in the short term, you may give different income support uh, to women. But at the end of the day, uh, again, if you have a, a double income family, you need to support the income that is greater if if one is going to be at risk. Mm-hmm. It's much more important to say, I think, that like in many other areas of society, and we're going to talk about uh, healthcare in a minute, uh, the pandemic in a way is a wake up call. It sort of underlines the fact that women are often uh, not the, I'll say, primary breadwinner or not the greater breadwinner. You know, uh, we have lots of friends where uh, the women happens to be more career minded uh, and and or make more uh, than the man in the relationship. And therefore, you know, she would not be the one. But if I looked and sort of said of all the people we know, it would be more often than the man. And so, again, I think the, the bigger thing is let's make sure that we actually solve this problem for the long term. Because if people are making, I'll say, a a pragmatic decision, and for people who are are not wealthy and don't have extra, they're maybe making the only decision they can make. The important thing is find a way next time to enable them to make a different decision. Uh, I Mm -hmm. I think that, again, I think, again, I don't want to be defeatist because I don't want to say, well, there's nothing we could do now. I just sort of think like that's the more important long-term, I'll say, policy objective that I would have. Right. Yeah, and we'll see what happens. Uh, the government right now is having their cabinet retreat. I know that childcare, that is something that's being thrown out there for the throne speech. So we'll see uh, if that is a concrete policy that does come out and um, and how that all unfolds. But I do uh, want to move on to our next topic. There's lots of uh, law, law news to discuss mm-hmm. this week. Um, this morning, the company announced that it, was, uh, it signed a deal to buy a minority stake in telemedicine company called Maple for $75 million. Maple is a Toronto-based startup that connects patients online with doctors and and health specialists. Uh, Loblaw had already been working with Maple through Shoppers Drug Mart. Uh, The service was available in about 160 locations in British Columbia. Uh, Maple has obviously seen demand for its service skyrocket through the pandemic. And Loblaw actually worked with the company uh, in the early days of the pandemic. It, it facilitated a, apparently 20,000 virtual uh, health appointments in less than a month. 
And this is not Loblaw's first investment in kind of that telemedicine health, connected healthcare field. Um, Mark, I know this is an area that you are particularly interested in. What do you make of this investment by Loblaw? Yeah, we, we've done a lot of work in, in the areas of virtual uh, healthcare, and this is an, another area I referred to it in the last story where uh, the pandemic is a wake up call uh, to us. I mean, I, I think many people have been saying for many years, telemedicine in many ways is the savior of Canadian healthcare. We have been talking about the underfunding of Canadian healthcare for years. Uh, and some of us have also been talking about the fact that telemedicine is one of the most important answers because it increases access to lots of areas where there are not access uh, and it does reduce cost. And uh, so I think that the wake up call is, you know, many people don't realize how many doctor's offices out there work on fax machines today in 2020. Many people don't realize that actually the reason that it's hard to get a doctor on the phone is that doctors are not paid to be on the phone because they did not have billing codes to do virtual visits. And what happened during the pandemic is everybody said, well, first of all, uh, people need to see their doctor because they may have COVID. But then there are a whole bunch of people who, if they don't actually see their doctor for vaccinations or if they have a certain condition for follow-up, we're going to have a whole bunch of other health crises on our hands. And so the government scrambled to create these uh, billing codes for virtual health care. And I think we have caught up, I'll say, 10 or 15 years in the matter of a few months. And so I just I wanted to make the broader point because I think this is... Uh, uh, the silver lining uh, of the pandemic. The pandemic is a terrible thing. It's a crisis. Nobody would wish it. But I do think we are going to be changed forever uh, in the sense that uh, we are finally going to adopt virtual health care. Uh, and if you think about uh, the benefits, so if you imagine a world where every second patient during a day at a doctor's office is virtual, then all of a sudden people are not commingling in the waiting room. Uh, because, you know, you're, you may go 15 minutes early, but you're not going to go 30 minutes early for your appointment. Uh, you think about uh, evening visits, uh, off-hour visits, doctors who want to work part-time, people who can't leave their office, uh, people who are in remote communities. We have such a healthcare crisis uh, in First Nations communities. There are so many reasons why this is uh, a pivotal time in, uh, I mean, in our society in a way, uh, but in, our, in the healthcare part of our society. So there are a million reasons why we want this. I think what's interesting about Maple uh, is the competitive landscape uh, and who is going to survive. So there are four big uh, virtual healthcare platforms today. So I mentioned a, a mental health one that I'm a partner in, uh, but I'm gonna talk about the big GP one. So you have Maple, Akita, uh, Babylon, and Dialog, right? And they are all competing for share. Uh, and what's interesting is to see is, you know, Loblaws, I'll say has chosen Maple as a partner They've now chosen to invest in Maple, but shoppers need scripts from everybody. So they're not going to suddenly be exclusive, uh, even if Maple got a very big share, right? Uh, and so mm -hmm. I, I think it's interesting to see how these four services evolve, who goes into specialist versus uh, just regular GP visits, uh, whether they actually hire docs to perform the visits or whether they become a software company that enables everybody's doc to do a virtual visit. Because if you think about it, you know, I have a doctor, uh, I like him, uh, he's very good, I feel comfortable, he knows my history. Naturally, uh, if I want to do a virtual visit, I would rather see Dr. Gelkoff than somebody I've never met before because he can contextualize. Um, 
but if, if these companies are saying we are actually a new doctor's office and if you're mm-hmm. sick after hours, uh, you know, just think of, just think of defraying uh, ER visits. Just think of the cost reduction of being able to call a doctor instead of going to the ER. So, but if you think about it, are you going to talk to your doc? Or are you going to talk to any doc? And then do you have to transfer it? It's sort of like, do you want it to be the virtual version of a walk-in clinic? And I think ideally we don't. Uh, and so I think that's one of the one of the things that'll be interesting to watch. Interesting. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see um, if that's why Loblaw chose a minority stake or if it's just to see how this will kind of unfold, I guess. Um as there are lots of competitors in the space. Um, but let's keep talking about Loblaw because there's more news. Because they want to own your whole life. They really do. Uh, three years after getting out of the personal banking business, Loblaw is jumping back in. Uh, it's financial services business, PC Financial, uh, announced the creation of a new PC money account, which is a new no-fee bank account that can be tied to your PC Optimum account. You basically get points with every transaction or you know, if you get direct deposit, that kind of thing. So Mark, you obviously know that Loblaw, this isn't their first consumer banking product. For nearly 20 years, it had a partnership with CIBC, but that was actually wound down three years ago and CIBC ended up absorbing the consumer banking products and creating Simply Financial. Loblaw held onto their credit card business and MasterCard products. Um, but Mark, this is a really competitive space. Uh, as Loblaw is very well aware of, do you think they're, this offering, this new account, uh, is enough to for Loblaw to go at it alone? They don't have a major banking partner like CIBC this time. There's so much to say on, on this story, what Loblaws <laughs> is doing in banking. So uh, my firm, uh, one of our partners, our financial services partner, used to work at CIBC when they had the uh, relationship with Loblaw. And he loves to tell uh, the story about how CIBC was bullied by John Letterer, who was the president of Loblaws at the time. And they essentially made a bad deal. And then now, a couple of CEOs later, uh, they're getting fired. And it's sort of similar to the Air Canada Aeroplan thing, where they have the brand and they have the control. uh, And they essentially fired CIBC from being the back end. And CIBC has put a lackluster uh, effort into uh, creating Simply, and they've not done anything with it. And I think what we see is the Canadian banks really struggling to have, I'll say, an upside gain view as opposed to a downside protection view when they think about uh, digital banking and no-fee banking and simplified banking. Because we have a situation in Canada, I may have shared my views, I'm very subtle about them, about the big banks, as you know. Um, You know, they are an oligopoly. Uh, They are protected by OSPI uh, in the name of, you know, a stable financial system. Essentially, we have capital requirements that are very heavy. Uh, uh, the OSPI does not give out banking licenses very easily. And so it's very hard to compete with them. And so you have a state today where actually the big banks are not participating in this digital banking, really. I mean, Scotia bought Tangerine. And if you look at the growth of Tangerine before Scotia bought it, and then after Scotia bought it, I know you guys are like when I use my hands too much, but I just have to sometimes, uh, you know, but they've not grown that much because they can't get their head around it. It's this classic disruptor incumbent sort of struggle where until you actually think that the baseline is not having the business you have today, why would you take your fee laden accounts and turn them into no fee accounts? Because then you look at it and say, well, I'm losing money. What 
well, the way you actually should look at it is, well, if you don't do it, somebody else will, and then you're going to lose share. So Lava is doing it, and they're they're going to clearly trying to use their points, their mm-hmm. optimum program, which is really popular to attract people to this. Best in do the you country. think that's going Best to program work? In the country. Is that going to work? I believe I believe many things are going to work. First of all, PC did an amazing job uh, when they started the bank with the kiosks. Uh, their uh, loyalty program today is the best and most important one in the country. Uh, they uh, definitely have a great brand and they have an ability to tie all these things together. So I actually think that despite my comments about it being very hard to compete with the big banks, Loblaw has a fighting chance because they, first of all, know how to operate a bank because they, even though they weren't doing uh, a lot of the, uh, I'll say nuts and bolts of operating it, they learned about what it is to operate a bank. Second, Mm -hmm. today, you could actually outsource a lot of the technology to run a bank, right, which is actually different than 10 or 15 years ago when you had to go to one of the banks and say, we need to back end on all your systems. Today, you could actually go uh, and there are a bunch of systems that you need. You can buy them all or rent them all. uh, And they have the brand. And so I actually Mm -hmm. believe that if anybody has a shot, they do. I think it will be better than Tangerine. I mean, they'll take some time to get the growth. It'll be expensive to acquire customers. But again, the, the points will give them a very good incentive for customers. Uh, I, I think they are definitely one to watch in the banking sector. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they might be a small player in the banking world, but Lava is not not a small player by any means. It's uh, They've got um, the track record as well. So yeah, we'll see uh, how, how that bank account goes and, and if they decide to expand and offer other services as well. Maybe but they should buy TikTok. Should they buy TikTok? (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Okay, Mark, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Um, But Mark, let's dig into some of the issues that businesses are facing and get your ideas and solutions for the fix. Um, We've seen throughout this pandemic, businesses be incredibly creative and nimble in their responses to the coronavirus pandemic, whether it's restaurants pivoting to uh, takeout or meal kits or food delivery or gyms going online and offering classes. Uh, Businesses have done a good job of pivoting in this pandemic. We're now six months into it, and there are many businesses that are still looking at refocusing and adapting to the changing consumer demand. So I want to talk about pivoting your business and how do you go about that? What are the things a business should keep in mind and and consider when you're looking at potentially shifting or or rebranding? What's the fix here, Mark? I think I think it's important to be methodical, and I think uh, it's important to think about the difference between rebranding. Uh, and actually pivoting your business and the relationship between those things, uh, and and also what rebranding is. I I I have a couple of friends who wrote a book. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's called Brand. It ain't the logo. Uh, Ted Matthews and Andrews Pone. I mean, just a little plug for them. But the, the headline of that book uh, has has always stuck with me because one of the things that people think is, you know, we're going to change our logo, we're going to change our name, 
and then we've rebranded. And the truth is rebrand, changing your logo or changing your name is actually the very last step in rebranding. You know, the first step is actually considering if something has changed in your marketplace. Has something changed about the way your consumers are actually buying your products or what they're looking for? Is there something that makes you no longer relevant? Or is there an opportunity out there that's success, that's uh, very exciting for you? And so I think that the most important thing to get right is the order of decisions. So are you rebranding for the right reason and or, or changing you know what it is what it is people think about you for the right reason? And before you do that, can you actually live up to the brand statement? I was working on this project. It was a, a chain of retail stores uh, in New York, and they were they 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 had a big agency and they were talking about all the rebranding. And we had this deep discussion about how much we should hype up the new offering in the store before we actually change a lot of the operations in the store, because it was really important to spend a lot of money. And that's a, that's another key message here to get people to change what they thought about you. But if you do that and then they try it out and it's not what you what what the new brand signifies, you've wasted it all. And so I think what's really important is to think about what it is that you want to change strategically. You shouldn't rebrand because your logo's tired or because you want a new name or because there's a catchy name. You should rebrand or pivot your business because you want to actually do something slightly differently. You believe that it's somewhat permanent. And so we, you know, we talk about the pandemic a lot and how some aspects may be mm -hmm. permanent and some may not. Um, and then can you stand behind it? An acquisition is a potential way to pivot, but an acquisition is a result of the decision to pivot. It is not the other way around. So a lot of people say, well, I'm gonna acquire this company and then I'm gonna change. No, no, you're gonna think about changing and then you're gonna think about the best way to changing is to buy rather than build. And then you're gonna buy or not. And then when we actually have a new value proposition that is really relevant, then we're gonna go and uh, rebrand. If you think about the car companies and you think about the hotels, obviously they're very large. They actually have a very hard time rebranding. I mean, think about Buick, right? So Buick mm -hmm. is a brand uh, that, uh, by the way, I had a Buick once, so no snickering. Um, but it was it was it was given to Hold me off. <laughs> for now. Uh, but it was given to me by my mom. Uh, I was in my twenties, right, and I needed a car, and so you know my parents gave me uh, the old Buick. And, you know, I didn't get a lot of girls with the Buick, right? It was not like the most exciting car, uh, but, it, you know, it drove, you know, and it was fine. Uh, and I didn't complain. And if you remember a few years ago, Buick did this whole campaign about, you know, they're much younger, they're sportier or whatever. And I think most people looked at it uh, and they kind of laughed because it was, you know, they did this Tiger Woods commercial, uh, you know, pre pre-scandal. Uh, and it was like, are they actually going to be able to do it? And I don't think it was successful. We had this other client. Um, it was called, I won't say the actual name. It was called Next Day Blank. Uh, and they were in a business to business service. And the whole thing was they were going to deliver whatever that service was to clients the next day. And then when we did the work, we found out, you know, my partner, Sam, and I still laugh about it because we did the work and all the customers say the biggest issue with this company is that the delivery times are too long. And we were like, okay, but here's the problem. Your whole name is next day blank. And so you either need to really put all of your attention to fixing that or actually decide that there are other things that you do well. And there were other things they did well. They weren't a gong show. Uh, there were other things they did well. And so focus on that. I'm, I'm going in a bunch of different directions, but. So, yeah, I mean, on that note, uh, what are some of the things that you should avoid 
doing when it comes to rebranding your business at this time? What are some mistakes that you just do have seen happen that you do not want businesses to engage in? You know, again, one is, uh, you know, as I started to say at the beginning, rebranding at the beginning as opposed to at the end, uh, doing it without some form of research. Now, of course, you know, my company consultants, we make a living off doing research, but I do think you may not be able to afford a strategy consultant uh, or a research company, but find a way to do some informal research, right? Don't make a branding mistake. Uh, make sure that first of all, you're doing the things that if you're changing your offering, that you're doing the things that your customers want. And those could be the customers you're serving or the customers you're not getting enough of. So find a way to speak to them and get a sense of what they're doing. Uh, and then make sure that brands are tested. And there are lots of, I can't think of one right now, but there are lots of epic fails in terms of brands that just got it wrong or signified the wrong thing. Uh, so do the research. Also, don't be too quick to make a decision. Don't look at a catchy commercial uh, or a jingle that uh, your competitor is doing and assume that just because it's catchy uh, that they're doing well. Like make a business decision and not a brand decision. That's a very hard thing for business people to do because business people like consumers are sort of taken in by, by advertising. And so when you see another brand that sort of seems more interesting than yours or more compelling or catchy, you just say, oh, I want to be like them. But before you do that, make sure that actually your customers want you to be like them. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. Or something else. One example, actually, I think of, um, and we've talked about it before, but, and this is one of the, it had one of the most enviable brand positions in the country. And that was Tim Hortons, mm -hmm. um, for, you know, I think if, over the last few years, especially when they were fighting with their, um, franchisee owners a few years back, they lost footing when it came to their brand reputation. Um, but what I noticed through the pandemic, I thought they actually did a pretty good job of, um, and once it hit, like by mid-March and the end of March, you were seeing ads that were highlighting not just frontline workers, but the Tim Hortons workers and not advertising, you know, these like weird Beyond Meat products that, that had no business uh, being on Tim's menu. Um, so I actually thought they were a good example of, of branding at, during the pandemic that works um, after a few it, stumbles over the last it, few years. Here's the thing about Tim's. So, uh, and I have uh, been vocal about Tim's because their coffee is garbage and their bathrooms are dirty, uh, but uh, they actually have always had a strong brand. And despite everything mm -hmm. the franchisees said about them, sale, sales did drop. So they did have a bunch of missteps. I think uh, the missteps were much more related to actually their offering than their brand, right? I think their missteps were related to trying to get people, I'm happy you brought up that example because I couldn't think of one. They tried to get people to buy lunch from them, and they thought that their brand would extend into lunch. Here's the point. Uh, they're not in the lunch business. Their lunch tastes worse than their breakfast. They are a drive-through uh, coffee place in big cities and a gathering place uh, in small towns and cities. They've done an excellent job with branding, always, uh, and they have an amazing real estate strategy. Focus on that. So that was like a that was a business mistake versus yes, branding. It was a business mistake. mistake, and their brands have always been very strong. And, Tim, by the way, they may one day call it Tim's uh, instead of Tim Hortons uh, and sort of shorten it and uh, modernize it one day when they feel they need to. But despite everything everybody is saying, if they actually just stuck to their knitting and uh, sold coffee, I actually think we wouldn't be talking about the whole Great White North Franchise Association as much as we are. Just my opinion. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad we got to talk about it. I know that that's actually 
like their brand is so strong. And whenever uh, I write anything about Tim's, like my inbox fills up. People care ex- very strongly about Tim Hortons. Even my um, American friends talk about it who come up here and do business <laughs> with me. They're like, I hope we're going to Tim Hortons. I'm like, okay, you could go. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, okay, before we wrap up the show, I do want to discuss quickly seasonal businesses now that we're kind of getting out of summer, I guess. Um, I think it's a good time to discuss what seasonal businesses should be thinking as we approach winter, whether it's uh, winter business that's approaching that season, uh, given there is still so much uncertainty. And then also for summer businesses that um, are looking to make sure they survive this uh, quieter time, the downtime um, through to next year. Uh, there's kind of two sides to this coin. What do you what do you think businesses should be thinking about, Mark? Uh, we talk, it's funny. You know, we talked about seasonal businesses early on uh, in, in one of the episodes of the show. And my view is actually a little different than it was then, because I think we've seen that the seasonal businesses are doing just fine, most of them. And I think they're going to be just fine. And so I was thinking about the different ways to think about seasonal businesses. Try to get a landscaper today. I dare you. Uh, you know, in Toronto and Collingwood, anywhere. Try to get people to do work on your house that is uh, outside. Uh, golf, right? That is a seasonal business in Canada uh, because obviously you can't golf in the snow. And guess what? Golf was a sport that was on the decline. And all of a sudden, guess what? We could actually be, you know, physically distant and hang out together. Um, so there are a lot of seasonal businesses that have actually done okay. If I look to the winter uh, and I think about it, if you think about the activities, well, guess what? Skiers wear masks and they're outside. And so it would be very hard for our ski club to send us an email and say we're closing down because our answer would be, wait a second. We thought that the only things you could do are things where you're outside and where you wear a mask. And that's all you do when you're skiing. Now, they're going to have trouble making money uh, selling booze at the Apres Ski or selling hamburgers for $12.50. Uh, but uh, they're going to be able to ski. I think hockey uh, will be a little bit harder because it's indoors, but still you're you're protected. Um, I think the seasonal businesses that are in trouble are the ones that are serving some of the holidays. So uh, you may not know the Jewish high holidays coming up this weekend. And uh, often uh, we get together for Rosh Hashanah dinner. Uh, That's not happening in many families. And so the catering services that do that uh, are going to struggle. Obviously, we're a very small percentage of society. But then think to Christmas. I think a lot of families will not get together physically for Christmas. And so I think the gifts, uh, people buying gifts will be about as much for the immediate family. But if you're not invited to an event where cousin Joe is there, you're not going to like send him an Amazon gift certificate. You're saying, oh, great. I don't have to buy cousin Joe a gift certificate or or a book or whatever you're going to buy this year. So I think gifts will be okay within the immediate family, uh, but not within the extended family. And that'll be a giant issue uh, for retailers. And food is going to be an issue uh, again, you know, like our example, like we'll, we'll do a, a quiet dinner at home, just us, but we're not going to buy the mm-hmm. same amount of food. And I think Christmas, I mean, listen, a lot can change by Christmas. Uh, I have my, my fingers crossed for some vaccine development before then, but not a vaccine distribution. So I think there's little chance that I think our mood could change before Christmas, but our reality won't change much. So I worry about that. And Halloween, I hope my kids aren't watching this. I was going to deliver. Halloween's not happening. Like, it's just not happening. Like, it, even if you could say we're outside and a lot of people wear masks, it's not that. The risk per interaction is very low, given that. But nobody's going to take the risk to have 40 interactions or as many houses as you go trick-or-treating at. And you're going to buy your kids candy. 
uh, maybe we're going to do a backyard party for some for a few neighbors, but Halloween Halloween's a problem. So if you sell chocolate, yeah, really yeah, I, we mentioned it a few up or last week, I believe, when we were talking about Dollarama yeah. and the I just saying it out loud, like going door to door in the midst of a pandemic, interacting with strangers, just doesn't seem like the best idea. But I'm I'm glad we got to talk about the seasonal businesses, and I think the first part of our conversation about pivoting your businesses will help those you know restaurants and as you mentioned the different different businesses that might not uh might have a tougher time going through the upcoming seasons but mark that is all the time that we have for today's episode uh if you want to rewatch our episode please check out yahoo finance canada's website you can also listen to us as a podcast but you can download on apple podcasts and spotify and if you have any questions for mark or feedback about the show please feel free to email me i'm at alicja at yahoofinance.com thanks for tuning in Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 